I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. Head from the side. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I'm your host, Emma Race, and I'm so thrilled to be in my Sanctum studio with my football-loving sisters. How are you, ladies? I'm going to let you introduce yourselves. Hi, it's Lucy Race. Nicole Hayes here. Taking a specky, Alicia, sometimes. How are you? I'm excited. Yeah, it's exciting. 40, just (laughs) finished. And it's starting again. One day off. One day off. Get out of your ice baths, ladies. We're back on. (laughs) There was um, Goods Friday, (laughs) Easter Monday. (laughs) (laughs) And and my chocolate eggs were de gooey. Yeah. So de gooey if you left them in the sun. Yeah, footy's back tonight. Um, So it's Wednesday. It's been so long. Traditionally known as bin night, mm. <laughs> but we're going to play footy. We're actually in a period of 11 days, and out of those 11 days, 10 of them have football. So that's 90.9%. So what was wrong with Tuesday? Yeah, really. What was wrong with it? But do you know what I think it is? I think what has happened is the AFL are trying to reclaim the missing 11 days. I don't know if you know this, but the 3rd to the 14th of September in 1752 went missing. <laughs> Yes, Excuse me. because of the calendar? It did, because yep. then when they tried to They're kind good. of rejig the calendar, yep. kind of like moving to driving on the left-hand side of the road or Wait, something oh like my that. God. How do you, hang on. Wait, what? But how yeah. is this quantified? You can't Google this. They weren't. They didn't have Google back no, then. No, they, And that was finals time too. What were they thinking? <laughs> so those days vanished into thin air because it was then that, the, that Britain made the transition from the old Julian calendar to the newer Gregorian calendar. calendar. It's good that you're upset about this because mm. the people were too. There were protests about it as people wanted their 11 days back. I feel like somewhere was. in the world there's a set of twins called Julian and Gregorian. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them's old school and one of them's new school. Would you call that a leap week? Yeah. <laughs> when you miss those days? It's like, where's my effing birthday gone? Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, we could have, my firstborn could have been born on a leap day on the 29th of mm. February and my husband was so keen on it and I was like, I'm not doing that to her. That's just So you held mean. your legs together? Yeah. No, no, she because she was in breach, we had right. to have a cesarean. Right. But um, I was like, no, dude, you can come off the golf mat. Golf course because that's where the she golf was. Mat. The golf mat. Get yeah, off the your golf, golf mat. field. The <laughs> golf field. I, that's just you, you being a tight is. ass because you only wanted to throw a party once every four years. The other little bit of maths that's interesting is that half of the competition are all only separated by percentage. So there are nine teams are sitting on 12 points. And I think the AFL would be very happy about that. And we have Mm. this on good authority 
We did see Gillian McLaughlin on on Easter Monday, and and we said you must be loving all these close matches and close teams. And he says my dream would be for eleven teams to all be still in it in the last wow. week. Which we, I mean, I don't I don't think wow. I was speaking out of school no, there. Am no, I? no, no. And then he said, "Who are you?" <laughs> no, he has absolutely no idea who we are. Speaking so. of um, getting excited about the end of the year, I got a, an invitation to the grand final for t- 2019. Oh. And yeah, they've already announced that it's St Kilda versus TBA. Oh. So I feel Ooh. like the fans are getting a little ahead of themselves, but I, I love the optimism. I'd love that. That'd be good for footy. Yeah. Oh. How's your dad going, Alicia? He's, He's a ex- St Kilda man. He's excited, but he does that thing that drives me crazy. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you tape a game and you actually think the outcome might be different, oh, even yeah. if your team has totally. won. So every week he watches a replay like 18 times. He used to wear the tape, the videotapes, yes. but he keeps thinking maybe they won't win this time. Oh, they've done it. So mm. he's got proof. Bless him. Okay, I have something really interesting for you today. We don't have Omen Watch because, and we have no Kate's here, but we do have M Watch. So this week there was an article in, oh, was it in the Sydney Morning Herald? I think it was. And it was written by Jane Holman and it was talking about injuries to AFLW players and she just dropped in there on two occasions, AFLM. It is my belief that she used to be the HR manager at the AFL. So for her to be using AFLM... That makes it official. That makes it... Well, I mean, she's not officially there now, I don't think. Um, And the other thing was, um, from inside Richmond, we got a redacted... A photo of a redacted movement chart or what an org chart for what they were doing that weekend. And all of the teams were listed and the AFL men's team was listed as AFLM. Mm-hmm. And our source sense. said it just it makes things easier. It's not been an official thing within the club. It's just rolling everything into clarity. alignment and clarity. Glow texters can only do so much. Are we all ready to melee? I'm going to roll my sleeves up right now. <laughs> you know, that's what I want you to do. Did you guys see there was a huge announcement yesterday of some funding going into Sydney, into Sydney football, Sydney Swans football. The current federal government pledged $15 million for what is going to be a huge up, uh, upgrade at the SCG, which Sydney Swans kind of sh- shopped that around as being an influx of money that will be able to help them and support them put together their AFLW team. I recently went to Sydney and I don't think I've discussed this on the pod, but I went to Sydney and I'd never, I've never actually been to a game at the at the SCG, which is something I would really like to. It's a bit of a bucket list moment. It's good. It yeah, I'm good. sure it's beautiful, but I did a little tour around the SCG and around the facilities that Sydney had. And I was really surprised because they've been so dominant for so long. They're such a slick team and, you know, mm. everything about Sydney seems fairly slick. Um, I was really surprised their facilities are just nowhere near what you would expect from for Mm. a team of that calibre. They're kind of locked in with this. They've got a real space issue at the SCG, Mm. which is where their head office is. They've even got a ground issue. Like the the AFL-M team don't even get to train on the SCG because it's so coveted. It's shared by so many sports. And at the moment, they're actually, because of pulling down another stadium... They're just training on crown land, wow. which is like I think they have to pick up all the rubbish and the whatever might be lying in the grass. And the AFL-M team don't even have facilities that are really required for an elite competition, let alone the space required to have an influx of a whole other team. So the AFLW proposition has kind of been mm. put on hold because of space. Mm. So when I saw this yesterday, I was like, that's really interesting. And it's a $55 million upgrade that they're hoping to do, which will make it a real hub, a real 
really great services that they'll be able to offer for women's sport because it's across netball as well. But I can't um, really press on you how important this is for the growth of women's footy in Sydney. And, you know, just looking at how we're seeing so many players moving from Frio to West Coast in the current trade period and knowing that Sydney at the moment is a one-team town for GWS um, in the women's competition and same with Adelaide, we really do need those other teams to come in to form really full-on competition to keep the competition really viable and inclusive, I suppose, to to get the whole state on board. And I don't think that you're going to make too much headway until the Sydney Swans can really represent with women running out in that jumper. Mm. And just a footnote, when I went to Sydney, I was standing in their reception area, which was about the size of my bathroom. It's tiny. And lift doors opened and Buddy Franklin walked out and I was like, there's a hidden cool. ca- there is a hidden camera. There must be a hidden camera somewhere. And the person I was visiting said, do you want a photo? And she whispered it. But, of course, he heard because we were about 30 centimetres away. And I said no. And I Aww. said no because I was trying to be cool. And I'm like, not what's cool. the right Why? answer there? No, you're not cool, Emma. Should I have said yes? <laughs> you might yes. have offended him. Oh, yeah, no. actually hurt his feelings. I, there's no way. But his feelings could not be hurt by that. Do you know what I you should blushing. do? That traditional thing when you meet someone famous and you go, your buddy Franklin. <laughs> He'd love that. <laughs> he would have loved that. Lucy Race, what's caught your eye this week? During the Brisbane-Collingwood game, goal review was again a point of contention and it reminded me of a podcast that my son recently recommended to me. It's called Against the Rules by Michael Lewis and the first ep was called Ref, You Suck. The whole premise of this podcast is about fairness and it in this first episode, it looks at the role of the ref. The whole thing's not specific to sport, but in this episode it is. There are a few things that caught my eye. The first thing was the idea that fairness in sport is so crucial that the NBA have spent $15 million on a bunker that reviews every decision or can review every decision that's made in an NBA game. For all of this money, they only review two calls a game. And I think that's an incredible investment. They also talk about how when the NBA was looking at overhauling the refing system to try and make it more fair, one of the things that they did was increase the diversity of the people who are refereeing because it used to be that they were mostly white men and at one point, there was a whole lot that had all come from the same school. Um, Xavier? <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things they talk about is how they publish the results each week. When you think that there is a home ground advantage, there actually is. The um, results of the umpiring decisions, yeah, do you mean? So, yes, and, um, and also the fact that often the refs will be a little bit more lenient on underdogs. And if a team is losing in the final minutes, they might, you know, just be a little bit easier on their calls there. But the main reason I want to talk about this podcast today is like most of us, like something that we discuss all the time, I'm really fascinated in the the idea of unconscious bias and how we combat it. I was fascinated when they recounted the story of some research that was done in 2007. So there was this study and Justin Wolfers and Joseph Price analysed referee calls in the NBA and highlighted that there was an implicit racial bias in the way that these calls were being made. So basically it was like an in-group bias that if you had black refs that they would be harder on white players and vice versa. They published their findings and the NBA was furious and tried to refute it and actually did some research that then actually just confirmed what Wolfers and Price had found. But what kind of ensued was a bit of a media storm. So it was across all of the mainstream media and it was talked about a lot. 
a number of years later, Wolfers and Price decided to go back and have a look at and to basically do the study again. When they did it, they found that that form of unconscious bias had completely disappeared. Wow. Wow. They kind of talked about the fact that the NBA said, well, we hadn't made any changes at that point. So their contention was simply becoming aware of the bias caused the refs to change the way they made decisions. And Price is quoted as saying, racial bias is a malleable trait. Large scale public focus on a specific type of racial bias in a specific group can make it go away. And I thought that was really interesting. They've actually done that research for AFL. I don't know if you realise that, but in the 2000s, they've done, uh, there were several different studies done where they looked at particularly the home game advantage. Um, and as you said, mentioned, the in-group bias actually played out quite consistently and it was even more heightened when they were in the home state. They measured it on free kicks. Um, they didn't look at where the free kicks were, so that does make a difference. Obviously, full forward, down forward, it would be different to in the centre, but just on sheer number alone. And they've replicated that a few times over the 2000s. But then in 2014, there was no bias for home games or home teams. The bias that came out was as a result of experience. So the greater the experience of the umpire, the more even the outcome. And the other thing that emerged from it was the bigger the margin, the more accurate the result. Wow. Yeah, so the pressure wow. was off. So the close games, they were more likely. And it, it kind of makes sense, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. But to see it actually play it out, it does also suggest we need to really look at umpiring for the AFLW, quality of um, accuracy and consistency. So I wanted to roll that into another conversation because in 2016, Chris Rock was the host of the Oscars that year. And one of the main standouts was that he was talking about in his opening monologue about how white the Oscars were and how there was no African-American or very few African-American nominees that year. In fact, so few that a lot of African-American actors, performers and people who worked in the industry had chosen to boycott the Oscars. Yeah, hashtag Oscars so white. Oscars Mm. so white, exactly. So he shone a light on it and it was in a really beautifully uncomfortable way. Mm. People didn't know whether to laugh or cry when they're sitting in the audience. Then you flip forward to 2019, Regina King, Mahershala Ali, um, Black Klansman won two, Black Panther won one, and you know that that upsets the system and changes the system behind the Academy Awards because as soon as you've won one, then you can vote. So you vote, it changes the dynamic and the makeup of who's actually doing the voting. And I was thinking about how you really know that a culture is reflecting back on itself when the pop culture is reflecting what you feel is the temperature outside and the mainstream media is often quite slow to follow suit. This week when I was um, working for ABC Grandstand in the commentary box on Sundays, as I do with Limo and Nathan Burke, it was a full house at Dockland Stadium because it was the only game on in Melbourne that day. It's the first time I've really seen it this year. And all the way to the left of me, all the way to the right of me, the commentary boxes were full to the brim with white men. There's not much diverse about me, but I was the most diverse thing sitting there. <laughs> mm. And I thought, gee, it's, we're really, it's really slow on the uptake. But I feel that it's coming. And the reason why I do is because this week there was this beautiful outpouring of diversity and inclusion in a celebration that was the performance of called Homecoming, which was Beyonce <laughs> and Coachella. <laughs> and there were so many motifs through watching Homecoming. And you yeah. know Beyonce is my person, right? Mm. I love her with my whole heart, but I think for people who even don't and for people who don't mm. even love her music, there's so many takeaways in Homecoming, especially if you're an AFLW fan, because I saw so many of the same motifs reflected back at each other. Um, there's a 
podcast that I've spoken about before called Still Processing, and it's by the two culture writers at the New York Times, Jenna and Wesley. Here's a grab from Still Processing, which was from a podcast that they did last year after Coachella had just happened, talking about their reflections on Beachella. She is bringing so many other different people with her. Oh my God. As she's doing this. That mean that's like the next time people tell you they can't figure out diversity because of hiring, just let them know Beyonce found like a hundred black women who can play violin and dance at the same right. time yep. to put on stage. So like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a conversation that we've had before. Like mm. it's really not that hard mm. to stretch your mind and to find people who are diverse, who have who bring a different conversation and bring a different aspect. And I think that we've seen that in AFLW. There's still a lot of men in the commentary boxes, but there's a lot of women having their say. And we know that the intersection of the AFLW and technology has meant that there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of diversity in people talking about the game. Of course, Beyonce is not just about what she's trying to do in terms of her culture, but also women. One thing I noticed and really loved was that you could see yourself reflected so many times over watching Homecoming. There were so many different shapes and sizes. Black women don't get to be thick like that on screen unless it's like the most exaggerated version of just like ass clapping in a music video. You don't get to see it that graceful. You don't get to see it that elegant. You don't get to see Annalise Keating and some fucking Daisy Dukes because right. she's a lawyer, but also just because like those aren't those aren't the black bodies and women we see on screen. Right. It's so true. Mm, yeah. There was there's um, dancers who are tall and short and and thick and thin and and the way that Jenna talks about African American bodies there is not the language that I use to talk about. We don't really use that language here so mm. much. But you know the diversity of that, and it was of course at the outset. It was always Beyonce's intention to be so inclusive. This bit is actually just her talking about what her aims were in the Netflix um, Homecoming special. It was important to me that everyone that had never seen themselves represented felt like they were on that stage with us. So my point is this. I would obviously talk about Beyonce in relation to football every week if I could, and maybe I do. When I was watching Homecoming, I was really overwhelmed by how emotional it was because I could see myself... But for African-American women, it would have been an even bigger moment. And for the African-American men in the audience, them too, they were mouthing the lyrics. It was it mattered to them. But it was also it was something celebrating things that have been pushed under the rug and have not been respected. And I think that that's where I just saw so many motifs for AFLW and how it is so similar that that moment that AFLW gives us is that it is a celebration of difference and it's a celebration of inclusion and diversity. And there's moments in AFLM, moments when Aaliyah Aaliyah mm. and Magic Door hug and there's that beautiful photo. That's a moment. When Basha mm. Hooley is um, doing the, t- the coin toss, that's another moment. But they're just these one, one-off Lipses. moments, you mm. know. Is sport can be that. Trojan horse in all of this because Coachella happens once a year or the Oscars happen once a year, but sport happens weekly. It happens daily. It happens 10 days out of this 11 days. Every evening, back in the day when I used to read The Green Guide, it would have news, sport and weather. And sport is given as much of a platform, especially in this country, as a lot of other events. I guess it gives us more opportunities to have those 
discussions because it just happens more frequently. The And I do think it is across a lot of aspects of our popular culture. And, and I know um, one of the things that, you know, we, we talk about when we write for young people is that every child should be able to find themselves in the stories and not have to hunt high and low to see anyone who looks like them and people who, um, versions of who they are and who they could be. Um, but that's also extended in recent years to the people who write the books and the people who publish the books and to be able to recognise that diversity and to be able to really live that diversity. It can't just be about the fictional characters. The makers of our cultural content also need to reflect what Melbourne and Australia and the world really, really looks like. And that's been the thinking behind the hashtag Own Voices. It's a hashtag that started on Twitter, created by Corinne Duvis. It was used to recommend books about diverse characters written by authors from that same diverse group. You know, for example, so a deaf protagonist written by a deaf author would be considered hashtag Own Voices. And in Australia, a recent anthology captures this approach. It was co- it's called Meet Me at the Intersection, and it's edited by Rebecca Lim and Amblin Quimelina. Meet Me at the Intersection is an anthology of short fiction, memoir and poetry by authors who are First Nations, people of colour, LGBTIQA+, or are living with a disability. And the focus on the, of the anthology is on Australian life as seen through each author's unique and seldom heard perspective. And I just think the more kind of um, we actively embrace and actively kind of seek out opportunities to read more widely, to em- engage with and culture more widely, then that's something as allies that we can do. Which is a good opportunity to shout out to your book, From the Outer, which is the reason why this podcast got started in the first place. (laughs) It is the cornerstone of our conversations, um, inclusion and diversity. And you guys really started the ball rolling with that book. Yeah, well, it was one of those things we wanted to get voices that are not often heard. And the great thing is they are getting heard more and more, Mm. which is so exciting. So, yeah, for for listeners there, if you haven't read From the Outer, big shout out. (laughs) Because there are incredible names. We're not just talking about Nicole and I. You were talking, Lucy, about unconscious bias. I wanted to talk about conscious bias. Um, Bring it. (laughs) Yeah. I know that our our eyes were glued to the Geelong Hawthorne game where Geelong had a 23-point win on Easter Monday. Um, (laughs) And I wanted to weave this into the history of a track by Country Joe and the Fish from 1968. They were very big on political uh, awareness. So listen to this. That's it for the good guys. And the whole thought of that piece was that when you're on your team, you go, yay. When you're on, you're against their team, you're booing. And of course, a big controversy on the weekend was that every time Gary Ablett got near the ball, people were booing. And just the quick analysis was that, uh, you know, Hawthorne fans are, are just booing. Some called into question that it was about Christianity. But I think on the whole, most people realised that it was because of the uh, his liking of a Falau, the Falau comment and the controversy around that. He subsequently unliked that comment and he said, I want to make it clear that I love all people regardless of race, religion, gender or sexuality. I've always admired how strong Izzy is in his faith. It's not easy to share faith in the public sphere and that's why I initially liked his post. I understand that liking this post 
post appeared offensive and this is why I chose to remove my like of the post. So I'm not saying sorry there is what Mm. he's really saying, but I'm sorry if you were offended. I think that's why the boo was so big. Many people came out and condemned to the booing and, uh, you know, Steve Hawking said, I thought Gary handled it well. He played exceptionally well post-match and it did not stop him from getting the ball and just <laughs> trouncing. Oh, my gosh, he was on fire. And he was mark of the year contender. A- yeah. Absolutely. And he was incredible. But it's that thing of players doing something exceptional and then fans booing. Some say it was because he's such a good player. I really don't think it was that. You guys were at the game. I was just watching from my couch with the kids. What did you think of the crowd well, it booing? Started, it started from the first touch. Mm. I think that booing is like wildfire. Yeah. Yeah. I think that yep. something gets sparked and then it just it actually did seem to grow. I don't like no. it. I don't condone yep. it. I don't do it. And I hope it stops. Like we don't. If it continues, we know it stops being yeah. about that. It, it starts being about something else and that's well, when it becomes bullying in yeah. a sense. I feel like when it moves into repetitive, relentless, and unfounded, you know, it's not about the actions of the player anymore. It's it's about inherently feels bad. The person. And I, I remember in the eighties, a lot of players getting. So Dermot Brereton always got booed, and a lot of a lot of players did when they were so called, you know, quotation marks good players. Mm. But um, it just inherently feels bad it this does, booing. It? But it's like I, I mean, we'll talk about this endlessly. But the fans booing their own players and telling their own players off, I think, is something that's quite extraordinary. That's Level. And it's next level. And we're going to, mm. I really want to explore that further. And just the fact that fans have this negative feeling for a player, it's quite extraordinary. Booing is in the eye of the beholder. I'm Ali Blackburn, and you're listening to the Yadda Sanctum. Should have just... yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, my God. This is too fun. Oh. Speaking of Beyonce, here's Emma. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I can't even do justice in an introduction, Amna. Today's guest, she's a powerhouse. You're about to find that out. She's a groundbreaker, a history maker, the founder and president of the Auburn Giants. She's a pioneer of women's footy in Western Sydney. Did I mention she's a Lebanese Muslim woman and a footy crazy fan who's turned up in Victoria to watch a team that is not hers go around on Anzac Day. We welcome to the Outer Sanctum with the greatest of pleasure, Amna Kara Hassan. How are you, Amna? Oh, I'm great. I'm excited. I've just come off my plane and I love Melbourne. So thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, we love you being here. We first met you at the W Awards. It was like a tsunami of information (laughs) and the most amazing mic drop moment of the night, I think, for all of us when we met you. And we all walked away thinking, how had we not met this person before? Can you tell us, how did you find football? I found football in my local park watching my cousin play a game. My cousin Mohammed was on this journey and he was constantly talking to me about, oh, it's so amazing, Amna, you know, we're born in Australia, but because we were raised in that post-9-11 era, we just felt like we were constantly misrepresented. And for him, being Mohammed, being from Western Sydney, feeling like he's stereotyped in so many ways, he found football was the way that he was equal to other guys. So he'd play in the East and the North and he'd come back and be like, you know, I played alongside Brett or Michael or James. And it was just about us and the footy and we'd have a chat. And he didn't feel there was any space for him to do that where 
he was just another bloke. And so he kept saying, imagine, imagine you would start a women's team and we could do the same thing. Imagine how powerful it would be because I can pass in society as just another guy, but you don't because you wear the scarf. And I was like, oh, you know, not much of a footy gal. <laughs> Never watched footy, don't follow any code. So why would I do that? I don't, I don't enjoy sport. It was hearing him talk about it, but then watching him and going, there's something in this. And I remember watching his game. I didn't understand a thing about Aussie rules, but I knew one thing. It was so athletic. You know, every time he moved, it was so exciting, you know, whether he was tackling someone or leaping up to take a mark. I just looked at it and could appreciate this is a really athletic, versatile game. You know, I'm too left feet kind of gal. (laughs) So I might learn and develop and we'll see what happens. There are a lot of people that might have the conversation that you had, but there are not many people that then go on and establish an actual football club. Mm. What is it about you that makes you do something like that? I think when you're women and when I was a girl, I often felt frustrated by people saying, you can't do that because you're a girl or girls should do this or girls shouldn't do that. And that would show up in so many spaces. So my father, I always tell him, Dad, you were stuck in this time warp of Lebanon. He left Lebanon in 1987, but he saw Lebanon the same way and he raised us as if... We were in that same era. And I'd say, Dad, I bet you if you went back to Lebanon, the whole world has changed. Your world would be different, but you think it's the same. He would tell me things like, that's not appropriate, you know, that's unladylike. And so I felt we would always hear these messages that socialised us to be good girls, you know, the good girl syndrome. I was constantly pushing up against kind of this expectation of who I would be as if to be yourself or to be different was a problem because my senses were heightened in my home environment. It meant when I went to university and when I entered the workforce, I was also very aware because that behaviour used to piss me off. And so because I was pissed off, I'd think about, well, what can I do about it? Because especially as a child, you feel so powerless. When I think about, well, what does reclaiming power look like? How do I have my voice heard? How does my voice go from being heard to doing something meaningful or making an impact? How do I influence my parents? You know, it's incredible that my childhood felt like a battleground at home. It was literally chaos. You know, six siblings, extended family. (laughs) Our grandparents lived with us. My parents, everyone had different ideas of what should and shouldn't be happening. We're very hospitable culture. So lots of people in and out of the house and everyone's got something to say. And I was the eldest and I learned to become diplomatic. So how do I convince my dad my degree matters more than me entering work straight away? How do I convince my dad that me working for the Australian Federal Police is a good opportunity for my career, not one that's a threatening career prospect to our family safety? You know, those were the things that I was navigating as a young woman. And so when something like my frustration at the absence of women's football in Western Sydney and absence, when I say football, I'm talking cross-code. I drive past the local parks, I wouldn't see girls. And I'd go, surely girls want to play footy. Surely someone somewhere is really upset and thinking, hey, I should be able to do this. And I bet you any money, no one has taken the initiative. And so it was like, what's going to happen if I try? Like, why not me? Let's get crack on. Like, let's do something about it, right? And so it was just like, I don't know anything about footy, but heck, I'm just going to text every girl I know and... They either show up or they don't. If they show up, it means they want to be here. And they showed up. So what were those early days like? 
the early days were fun. They were exciting. There was a positive energy around the possibility of what is it. I mean, you have to remember the majority of the women had Lebanese ancestry. So this was a generation of women who were born in Australia, whose parents had different migration experiences. We talk about what does it mean to be Australian and sport and this game in particular. Everyone talks about this is Australia's greatest game and we'll let the cricketers fight over that. But, <laughs> you know, I'm not one for cricket. It's too long and, you know, footy is something that I think is more relatable. We all felt like we were part of something. We had this incredible bond, but we could talk about things. So if we organised a bus to go to Wollongong, because that's an hour and a half from where we are, we'd be on the bus and we talk everything. We talk religion, politics, what's happening in the world, our families, our dreams. And so can you imagine that level of sharing? It was hilarious in the first couple of years because we were navigating a lot of complexity. And one of the things was our captain was the only Anglo person in the team and she was gay. And so she came in thinking, oh, my God, there's so many Muslim women here. What does this even mean for me? And on the other side of that, you have a bunch of uh, women raised in a conservative faith and they might be conservative in practice. And she would ask all sorts of questions. And she told me, never in my life have I been the minority. The script was flipped. And so she was seeing the world completely different and able to interact with people that otherwise she wouldn't have interacted with as well. And so she came into that process quite open. And when things made her uncomfortable, she'd come and say, you know what, I'm not, I had this interaction and I didn't feel comfortable with it. I didn't feel that person respected me. And I'd go, okay, I'm really sorry you felt that way. And I would have to go away and have those conversations. And at the same time, we'd be talking about the role of women and so... You know, she's a strong feminist and no one uses that word in our team. And she'd hear me on the bus going, women should be able to do one, two, three, four. Don't you let people tell you. <laughs> and so I'd get, you know, really passionate and fired up. And then there'd be girls saying, Amna, you can't. That's too crazy. You're so crazy. And she'd just be like, Amna, you know what it is. As she's driving this bus, you're a feminist. <laughs> you're a feminist. What people see as a conservative practicing Muslim woman is someone who is a very strong advocate for the rights of women. I've heard you say in interviews that a lot of people have opinions on your identity. And yeah. <laughs> I guess as a team, there's going to be a lot of opinions about the identity. And maybe talk to us a little bit about identity and intersectionality and how it is combined in your team. I think you just grow up the way you are. I don't think you think much about it until things go wrong. And when I was in high school, the things that went wrong was everything around terrorism and its connection to being Muslim. Unfortunately, you know, we're having this conversation on the back of incidents in Sri Lanka. But there was that. And at the same time in the Australian setting, I think what compounded that feeling was the race relations and the tension politically here. And so I went to school at a time that the Cronulla riots happened um, there was negatively racialized reporting on Middle Eastern men in particular, I would say throughout the thousands. In particular, there was a case of these Middle Eastern men who'd raped an Australian woman. And the way that was reported and the way that whole case played out in the media, that was my context. That's how I see the world. In conversations I'd have in the playground with my friends, they always felt it was us and them, that people think we are horrible people. And when we started this team... I remember having conversations just about the word Australian and it was met with so much resistance from young women who were born in this country who said, I'm not Australian, like, they don't think that. They accepted someone else's definition of who they are. 
And I said, just because someone tells me that I'm not, it doesn't mean that they're right. I had this idea of resistance. And I think that idea has to be alive. We need to cultivate this idea because what we do in businesses and in family life and in so many settings is we go, that person's resistant, delete that person. It's too much trouble. And so if I'm a good leader, then I need to step back and go, okay, we have different things that influence how we operate, our decision-making, how we present in different spaces. And if I value diversity, how will I step back and hold space for that difference, even when I met with resistance and I believe it's unnecessary? And because I grew up seeing complexity and seeing how religion and culture and all these intersections end up in conflict that is not reconciled, I kept thinking about, well, what role do I play in that? Now, this is the insane thing, that we expect other people to change our condition. And I don't accept that idea. I never have. I believe to change our condition as a society, we need to change our condition as individuals. And so that means if I work on me, and then I work on my connection to you, Alicia, and then you, Nick, and then you, Lucy, then it's that one degree of connection. And then it starts to create that ripple effect into communities and into a bigger society. And then we can talk global. One thing that is very rare in in a football environment is that we see a lot of intersectionality, for example, at some clubs. Um, But when we look further up the tree, Mm. we see less diversity. Yeah, you know, I've been having this conversation with a lot of my colleagues at the AFL and trying to create that awareness around that. And this is so important because I think a lot of people run away from the conversation around privilege. I have an education. I am privileged. We're all privileged here. Men have more privilege than women. White men have more privilege than men of colour. Like, so there is a reality around power and privilege. Now, if we can be honest about the facts, then we start to get the diversity piece right, whether it's gender, whether it's cultural diversity, whether it's um, disability, whether it's Indigenous inclusion. We can start to look at the whole scheme of it, you know, and what we're seeing right now is that shift with women, with the AFLW, with how we're seeing them in sports commentary, in executive positions at the AFL. We're seeing women now permeate across the business, but it's taken us a long time to get here. Now, if you add the intersection that I have, which is you're from a different faith in Western Sydney, and if we're talking uniquely about that, we're talking about class. Western Sydney is literally your like second class citizens to the rest of Sydney. So you take all those intersections, and this is the this is the thing that really like boggles my mind. Hanine's raker and women like her do not come up out of nowhere. Do they do not succeed just miraculously? She didn't just come out on a footy field and is now an AFLW superstar. That's not how it works. We have to be real about the layer of not layer layers of disadvantage. And the layers of support around an individual like Hanine to ensure she is successful. Now, one of those things at a grassroots level has been a football club. But one of the biggest challenges and pitfalls for me as a leader of a football club has been feeling like people don't get it. People literally, it's not in their frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're at a crisis point now, given that the Auburn Giants won't be fielding a women's team this year? I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's an opportunity. The Auburn Giants were in a joint venture for the last 
two, three years with Penrith. So we were a standalone club. The history was we were standalone. We were horrible, by the way. I don't think I mentioned how horrible we were in the first couple of years. We I lost in some stats. Yeah, we lost every game, I think, in the first two years. So how was I going to take our team and our club and move beyond that? And so we were able to find a coach, we were able to find sponsors and become financially viable and sustainable through our coaches. The next year we made preliminary final, the year after we got promoted into Premier Division. And at that time there was only two tiers. So we just went from the bottom tier into the top tier and it was the inaugural year of Premier Division. And it was a really tough thing to see the club go from winning and getting there to saying the AFLW, this is 2016, is on the horizon we need to be in Premier Division. So talent like Hanin Zreka, Leo Kassa, Margot Vela and any other woman who plays football here believes that AFLW is a real possibility for them. Now, I was not popular for making that decision. I had a great vision. It made total sense. It was aligned to what the AFL was doing. And so, again, I was met with resistance. We had a tough season. And the alternative that we put to the AFL was let us enter a joint venture with another Western Sydney team and represent at the highest level and hopefully girls from this region will feed into GWS. And so we did that and we were incredibly successful in that, in that joint venture. But that joint venture only had a three-year time limit on it. And in that time, while they were doing, while we were in this joint venture and we were winning games and we were getting to finals, you know, two, three years in a row, the AFL was doing a whole body of work around what is the future of football in this state. And some of the recommendations I came back with was, well, we need to do better in terms of men's clubs, need to have women's teams aligned. Now, somewhere along the way, the application of that vision became women's clubs also need to be aligned so that you have a Premier Division men's and a Premier Division women's. And so when I went to resubmit our nomination, I was having conversations. I said, Amna, whether it's this year or next year, Auburn will not be a viable club in Premier Division if you're not able to meet this criteria. My position is the criteria should not be applied for me because we've not been operating in an environment where there's been real opportunity for women. So at the end of that conversation, I said, okay, well, it goes one of two ways. Either we're not in Premier Division and we have a participation side and there's still an important role that we can play for the women or we find another way. And at the same time I was having those conversations, our coach had a heart attack. I'm already processing this enormous sense of loss because I've worked so hard to get here and it felt like I needed to work twice as hard because people didn't get it. It is exhausting. Mm. When our coach had his heart attack, I said, maybe this is a message and I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in destiny. I believe things present in your life. Now you either step into them or you don't and I step into things. So when he has the heart attack, I go, so there's what I want but there's also sometimes what I need to listen to. I just had to be honest. So I, I called Sam Graham, the AFL CEO, and I said, yeah, this is not going to work. I'm going to pull the team out. And he did. He asked me a thousand times, I'm not, are you sure Auburn's really important? And I said, no, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. I can push or we can pause, do the work, and then come back to that. So this is pause. It really felt like the end of an era. Like my heart was shattered. I, I was experiencing this enormous sense of loss, not seeing those girls every week, not talking to them about life and how they're going. People don't realise that football has such an enormous social impact, emotional impact. It's not just about the economy. I think a lot of people think about football and money. But I think when you, you're at a grassroots level, it's really meaningful. 
if led if led well, if we cultivate the right space. You do have a, a relationship with Hanine Zraker. You mentioned that earlier. Yeah. We, when we met you, you were you were down at the <laughs> yeah. W Awards with her. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh goodness, I often reflect. She is like my little sister. We met Hanine when she was she was fourteen, and her PE teacher said, "You're really talented." He called someone from the AFL to watch her and said, "Watch this girl." And he said, "Run out and play footy with the boys." The AFL called me and said, "This girl lives five minutes away from your field. Can we bring her down?" And she was this quiet, shy, you know, didn't say anything. And at training, I immediately recognised she was exceptionally talented. And I thought, oh, gosh, I have to wait 12 months to play her in women's football. What am I going to do? Yeah, I'll just put her in a jersey, put her under someone else's name and see how that goes for us. <laughs> <laughs> and I was absolutely terrified to do it. And so we put Hanine under Naz, another girl in our team who wasn't playing. And she was doing the team thing, but she was always the best option. Word got around about this superstar girl playing at Auburn and someone from the AFL said, hey, I'm not, that wouldn't be Hanine playing in that braid that she always wears. And I said, and if it was, they said, and if it was, you would lose all your points this season. So maybe don't do that anymore. <laughs> and we got really lucky. But the hardest thing was saying, hey, Hanine, you can't play footy anymore <laughs> until next year, but keep training. Seeing her development on the field was one thing, but working with her to develop her off the field to learn how to be more assertive, more vocal and more communicative, but building up the human being that is Hanine, that's taken an effort, not just, you know, Arabs say it takes a village. Hanine has a village in Oztag, NRL, AFL, in her family, our extension of that community. There's so many people around her trying to ensure she really builds up to be this incredible person because they believe she's this beacon of hope. And I think that's really hard because she's 19. Yeah. I'm 30. I can be passionate about the identity and the politics and the intersectionality and all that stuff. It's one thing for me to speak to it. It's another thing entirely for a 19-year-old to want to just do well at footy but then know she carries all this other responsibility and try to navigate that I am a role model. Because her default is to be a larrikin. Like, she'll just laugh at everything, you know, and not really want to think deeply about stuff. And that's okay. So, you know, my role in her life is, I guess, knowing when to support and then when to step out and let her figure things out. It's a very beautiful relationship. She drives me crazy, I'm not going to lie. You know, she's playing NRL right now and my biggest thing is, what if you get injured? And she's just like, if I get injured, I get injured, you know? So she's a typical young woman who loves sport. She She's a teacher's aide at a school. She loves kids. She loves working with kids that have special needs. So she's this really generous spirit and so lovable. And I really hope for her sake that we can start to do some things a little bit better so that she is not the only one. Absolutely. You know, we need like 50 more. We need like, 50 more of you, Amna. Yes. <laughs> going to be village, a movie. I think there could be. If a village has raised Hanine, then you're half the village. Your fingerprints are all over that beautiful goal that the world needed. I know you have a direct line to the AFL, which pleases me greatly. I feel calm knowing that you're in control in Greater Western <laughs> Sydney. And um, we are so honoured that you were able to come in here and share your unbelievable wisdom with us today. And we look forward to this being a really long and enduring relationship with you. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I love you all so much. <laughs> and if you haven't listened to the Outer Sanctum, you should follow them on Instagram and listen to their podcast. <laughs> my name is Francis. I like to call myself a professional mascot, currently the Hawkette for the Hawthorne Footy Club. How on earth do you become a professional mascot? Great question. So I studied theatre arts, love performing, two passions, uh, performing arts and football. Um, And one of my teachers had a performing arts events company. And so all the students used to get along to do mascotting sort of gigs. I wanted to take it to the next level. So I went out there and uh, I sent a cheeky email to my favourite club and the best club in the whole world. They eventually got back to me and said, she might be onto something. Let's get her in uh, and see if she's any good. Something that we've really, we've talked about quite a bit, especially during the AFLW season is, is there a heat policy for mascots. So there were some days that were like 40 degrees mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I saw someone running around in a Sharon football. I mean, I presume there was someone in there. It might have just been a, you know, Sharon with legs. Is there a heat policy? Yeah, yes, it is quite hot. Lucky lucky the gig is in winter. I have done uh, some hot days in my time. It does get quite smelly and sweaty in there. You should really be in there 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. Is there rules around being a mascot? You can't talk, you can't, like, are there certain actions you can't do, certain things you can't say? Uh, like, when you're the meat pie, how are you restricted by that character? I, I don't think you should talk in the mascot suit, although the I think the Carlton... The That's man and the different. woman, they're a bit they're different. different. When I went in for the interview, I said, oh, the, the most important thing about a mascot is being over the top physical. So I don't talk unless I see someone that I know and be like, hello, hello. <laughs> Shaky. So who in, your, in the mascot world, who do you look up to? Like, are you emulating someone? Is there someone out there that you the, uh, admire? A, yeah, there's a couple in America that are, are quite, the Philly fanatics is quite <laughs> yeah, funny. Fanatic. If yeah. you guys know who yes. that one is, quite cheeky and funny. So The mascots often, you know, kind of come up against each other ahead of a game. Are there rules that govern what you can and can't do? Well, I asked the same question before I started and I said, are we allowed to be cheeky and interact with the other mascots? And then they advised, well, it's pretty much if, if the other mascot's up for a little bit of banter, that's okay. I always love a little bit of a cheeky play with them and egg them <laughs> on. There's nothing wrong with that. A little bit of fun. Are you a football fan? And do you have a moment when you're running around in the middle of the MCG and you I like, oh, my gosh, look where I am. Absolute massive footy fan, the best sport in the world. Mm. Uh, and I made a joke with my mum because neither my brother or I are, are sporty and I said, did you ever picture me running out on the MCG? <laughs> <laughs> she's like, no. And I'm like, but you expected it over Michael, right? And she's like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, any parent would be proud, Francis. We are so honoured to have had you in here and to give us the, I mean, genuinely. It's a big deal. This is Blushing, a big like, deal. This is a very big deal. You bring so much joy and colour and movement. We talk about the mascots a lot. You're doing the people's work. Thank Thank you you very much. Thanks for having me. You're doing an awesome job yourself. Sometimes I feel a real privilege sitting in this studio, meeting the people that we meet, and I think all of us are feeling Mm -hmm. (laughs) overwhelmed a bit today about Mm -hmm. how um, powerful these women are that we've just spoken to. We're all looking very windblown by our experience um, today. It's been extraordinary. Has anyone got any final business before we get out of here? I do. Thank you, Shelley Ware, for sending me this story that on Good Friday, Woodville West Torrens and the SANFLW made history when mother-daughter duo 
Bronwyn Davey and Tashana Ma took to the field together. So Bronwyn has played over 100 games and also happens to be the sister of Aaron Davey. Tashana is just 17 but looks to have an exciting footy career ahead of her. And how incredible is that for a mother and daughter to play together? The momentous occasion was captured by an upcoming footy photographer named Hannah Rex, and you can follow her on Instagram at On The Ball Media. But I highly recommend having a look at some of those photos, and um, you can click through to the story of Bronwyn and Tashana. I'm going to take you to Europe, because why wouldn't we? <laughs> um, the Anzac Cup is, is being played on the 27th of April, and that's not even the hard bit. Here's the hard bit it's being played at Villers Bretonnier. Oh, yeah, nice do you like one. that? French national side will play Australian spirit women's team. And the captain is a Tasmanian, Nicole Young. She stems from Oxford and played in the inaugural Australian Football National Universities League and was part of the second Women's Varsity Cup. Um, watch out for that on the 27th of April. I know we've praised photographer Michael Wilson at length. His photo of Taylor Harris was amazing. And everything he does looks like a renaissance dinner. He is How incredible. How is he doing that? He is an amazing photographer. Now, he snapped a beautiful... Beautiful shot of Gary Ablett taking the screamer in front of 66-odd thousand at the MCG on the weekend. And in the background is 27-year-old American Josh Hernandez. He rose before anyone else, anticipating what's about to transpire. The joy on his face is the way we feel when we talk to guests like Amna. (laughs) We just love footy this much and he captured it so much. And he said on his Instagram, hey, my very first game and I make it into an AFL album. I even made it in the action shot. I've been reading all the comments about me cheering before he even caught the ball and they're great. And he was so thrilled. (laughs) So I encourage anyone to look at Michael Wilson's photography. Full stop. But this one of the screamer is excellent. Josh is awesome. Amazing when you see um, the game that we love transcending um, and going overseas. And this is kind of, I guess, the theme of our final business. We just got a tweet from a guy called Prozac Horseman. I don't know. I don't know what all that's about, but it says, Out of Sanctum, I'm a couple of episodes behind but listening to Love Letters now. The Erin Phillips moment at the grand final for me, some American who watches sport all over the world and a lot of women's sport, is the greatest spectacle I've ever seen in life. Wow. wow. (laughs) That is a huge shout out. Thanks to the Horseman. And thanks to you all. You've been so kind, especially on the back of our um, podcast last week with Anna Scully. Um, I think she has just made so many fans. She mm. probably has more fans than Eddie now. And a huge <laughs> shout out, of course, to Eddie. That goal, Eddie, you just didn't let us down. <laughs> what a man. What a player. Unbelievable. By the time we speak to you next week, thankfully, the <laughs> AFLW draft will be over and we can get a decent night's sleep. Um, stay tuned to all of our socials. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We do respond to emails as well. We love hearing from you and we also really appreciate you reviewing us on iTunes. I promise we really do read them and they mean the world to us. So if you can go there and review us and you haven't already, we would really appreciate it. But thank you so much for joining us. And before we sign off with one tiny little thing, I just want to say a huge shout out and a thank you to Tess Armstrong, our producer. You are the wind beneath our wings. There's only one little thing left to say, ladies. It's Midler! (laughs) Go! Funny. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.